Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Fertility and Sterility Podcast, the most listened to podcast in reproductive medicine. I don't know about that. Um, I think so. I think so. Look at all these people here. (laughs) We are at ASRM 2022, and we are so excited that you are here. I can't believe everybody's here. And don't forget to take your picture in front of the ASRM sign. That's what everybody needs to do so we know we can raise awareness about reproductive medicine. We're super excited to start the conference off with one of my favorite topics, advocacy, access to care. And now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned, this becomes more important than ever. So please join us because you guys are the key to helping us keep access to care open. I have some incredible speakers here with me for the podcast. My co-host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I have the Chief Officer for ASRM for Development, Advocacy, and Policy. It's actually Advocacy, Development, and Policy, because really advocacy comes first with Mr. Sean Tipton. And then we have a special guest, another special guest besides Sean Tipton, another incredible advocate, uh, Mr. Qasem Rashid, who is the Executive Director for our new organization, Doctors for Fertility. We've been working together with ASRM and Resolve, and we're super excited because um, we have so many resources now, and we want you to support all of us, ASRM, Doctors for Fertility, Resolve, Fertility Within Reach, so we can keep access to care in the United States open. Natalie? We are so thankful to ASRM and to Fertility and Sterility for allowing us this opportunity to speak with you all. I think everybody who is here is aware of the impact that the Dobbs decision is having on our patients and potentially could have if we do not work very hard to educate people the affiliation and the association between all reproductive rights. So IVF and fertility care access, pregnancy and miscarriage management, and contraception access. And we're so honored to be able to have this opportunity to discuss what we are doing and answer questions. And we have some very special guests in the audience. So I'm going to start by talking to Sean over here. So Sean, we're so honored to have you. But I know from an ASRM standpoint, you have been watching this and personhood bills for quite a long time. So even though some of us are newer to the fight of personhood, I know that you are not. And so what is your take on the current environment and is at much at stake as we currently think that it is? Thanks, Dr. Crawford. You know, it's it's interesting. I keep trying to find silver linings in the terrible news that is the Dobbs decision. And I think one of them is it really exposes the danger that has always been present in this field, right? Uh, this field, people care a lot about sex. They care a lot about reproduction. There, there's a lot of feelings and emotions. And 
uh, and that plays an impact, I think. And I think it's dangerous for those of you who work in reproductive medicine to think you can get away with working in this field and not paying attention to the policy process. Uh, your ability to take care of your patients to earn your living is very much at risk. Yeah. And, and I think it's just sort of exposed that reality to people and made it real in, in a way that it was sort of a hypothetical concern before. I think one thing that makes Doctors for Fertility really important to me right now, and I know I've expressed this with you, is that as a physician, most of us who are currently practicing were raised during a time where we were told to stay out of politics, that that was not good for patient care, that we should not express our political views because it might turn somebody off or make them not want to be our patient. And we just stayed silent and didn't show or tell how important this issue really is for us to be able to care for patients in this way. So I think this is the time for all of us in reproductive medicine to really know that, as you said, becoming politically active is the next step if we want to keep practicing in a safe and effective way, especially when it comes to IVF care. And I think it's, it's reassuring that the data shows that the majority of people in the United States really do support access to reproductive care. I mean, 2% of all babies born in the United States are conceived via IVF. And we know that they all those babies come from all different political parties and religious backgrounds. But the silent majority needs to stop the silence now. That's I think that's the difference is, you know, Sean, you've been, Sean and Kasim have both been very politically active and very aware and of the of the issues that are going on around women's rights and reproductive rights and doctors and others in the silent majority we've just been assuming that we have access to this care and that people take those things for granted but we are actually they are actually writing laws threatening to throw doctors in jail for providing normal pregnancy care And uh, many of your colleagues don't realize that. I've been talking to people all over the country, and other doctors are telling me, you know, that doesn't really have anything to do with me. But as, you know, the phrase goes, abortion care is health care. We know that even though we literally make babies and make families, that it's not enough to take care of the embryo in the dish. We got to get that embryo into the uterus and then that baby has to come out of the vagina. And that's a long journey. Or the abdomen. Or the abdomen. Or the abdomen. Or the abdomen. (laughs) And you know that can be a hazardous journey. You know that can be life-threatening. And that's the problem is most people are not aware of those issues. And, you know, everybody's aware now of fake news and misinformation. And let me just tell you, the uh, forced birth movement has been trafficking in that for a very long time. Uh, Now some of that's being exposed, but you're seeing that now. Or, you know, you see state legislators who are like, well, of course you can just move that ectopic pregnancy somewhere crazy of course you can so and these are the people who are making what are literally life and death decisions you know and we see all the time state legislators who have no idea what they're voting on and then have no idea what law they passed uh, because they just don't want to take the time to understand the reality and we've got to try to if we don't force them to face reality they absolutely will avoid it but i want everybody to know that this is actually not difficult Everybody here right now, everybody listening to this podcast is actually an expert in this area, and people want to hear from you. So um, 
that's what we want to do. ASRM, Advocacy, the new Center for Policy and Leadership, the new organization, Doctors for Fertility. We want to give you a voice and tools to be able to talk because you are the experts in this area, not the legislators. And I've been telling people this is kind of like handing a legislator a knife and saying, okay, you decide when the appendix comes out. We would never allow that, but we are allowing that in pregnancy care today. That's so true. And I'd love to hear Kassam's thoughts because he's new to the fertility space, but he is not new to human rights and to injustice that happens to different people. And he has joined us with DFF. He's our executive director. And this fertility territory is new to him, but I know it's something he's now very passionate about. And I'd love to hear your take on this period of time where we're in and how important it is for our action right now. I have been blown away by the passion, the compassion, the enthusiasm, the conviction of the folks that I've met at ASRM. Um, I have been fortunate to work with the DFF board for the last six months. And I got to tell you, there's not a more committed group of leaders out there who uh, walk the walk, talk the talk, uh, and lead by example. I'm here because in my career as a human rights lawyer, my focus has always been how do we create a world where there is more equality, more equity, more access to justice. Uh, in law school, one of my favorite classes was with now Senator Tim Kaine discussing the future of equality. What does a future of equality look like? And I think this, this challenge of our time right now on basic human autonomy, basic bodily autonomy is a critical component. And, and to echo what uh, all three of my esteemed colleagues have really eloquently said, is we've been fighting this whole fight with both hands tied behind our back the entire time. And in the absence of having you experts in the room, it's, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, a bunch of people who have no idea what they're talking about. And the result is, is devastating consequences for all of us. But the good news is this, and there is good news, I promise you. The good news is that when you look throughout American history, we see a continual movement towards justice. We see a continual effort by those who are in power to suppress marginalized and underrepresented communities, and we see a continual movement of a coalition of people, low-income, high-income, black, white, brown, gay, straight, working together for basic human dignity. And, and women's rights, there's no greater example of that. I've, I talked about this yesterday at our amazing DFF launch party, which had like 300 people, which is outstanding. Thank you for showing up. That... When you look at American history, women's rights have been under attack from the get-go, but we've moved forward because women and men, yes, talking to my fellow men out there, we need to carry our weight and be responsible. And this, in my view, is the fight of our time to make sure that we're engaged, we're involved. And I'll just close with this. One of our tangible action items at DFF is to train 500 physicians over the next year to be able to have these types of conversations with their legislatures, with their local elected officials. I'm going to call out Dr. Stephanie Gustin, who's on the DFF executive board, who, due to her advocacy, we were able to block a horrible bill in Nebraska from passing. Now, imagine if we had 500 Stephanie Gustins around the country. We would be a much better, more compassionate, more progressive place, and that's what we need to accomplish. I think if I can just jump in with my fellow kindred spirit and constitutional nerd, Gustin. <laughs> I think if you're at all intimidated by getting involved in the process, I would just urge you to go read the First Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It is famous for establishing freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, but it also contains a passage that says every American citizen has the right to petition the government for redress of grievances. And so I would just urge you to take advantage 
of being in America and exercising that right because if you don't, that right is going to disappear. Yes. So you have to use those muscles or they go away. Yeah, well said. Absolutely well said. So I think we only have a few minutes left, Sean. I did want you to tell everybody about the Center for Policy and Leadership, brand new. We're very excited about that. Yeah, uh, thanks for that. Uh, The ASRM Center for Policy and Leadership is a new nonpartisan think tank uh, designed to take on tough issues that your work creates, to be frank. (laughs) Um, uh, So we have have done some reports. We did a transition document as the Biden administration came in saying, here's what we wanted. We did a a model to show what it would cost, which is not that much, to provide proper infertility care for our active-duty military. And then this summer, we've done two very significant reports that really moved the center forward. Uh, We did two reports analyzing the states that have passed abortion restrictions. Within a month of the Dobbs decision coming down, we had a report out that analyzed the so-called trigger laws. These were laws that said, if Roe was reversed, this law takes effect. So we got that out right away because those laws were taking effect right away. And then just a couple weeks ago, we released an analysis of another 15 or so states that had abortion restrictions. And we, we do that, number one, so you'll have good information for your career. But also, we want to make sure that ASRM and the Center for Policy and Leadership is a place where policymakers and the media go for good, accurate, non-biased information. There is a uh, certainly a deficit in terms of accurate information in this field for policymakers, and we're setting out to correct that. So I need to shout out um, some really great people in the audience. We we talked about Dr. Stephanie Gustin. She's on our executive board. Dr. Lucky Sakan, raise your hand. Um, Dr. Laura Shaheen is here. We have other advocates. Dr. Emily Barnard is the new ASRM liaison to ACOG PAC. So, and Erica New is also an advocate. And Dr. Simone is giving me the evil eye because he is in charge of the podcast. We are going to wrap up the podcast. We're going to keep talking with this conversation, but for the recording, we're going to wrap it up. The last thing I want to say before the podcast recording, one, anybody can join Doctors for Fertility as well. You can join us if you want to learn more. We are working with ASRM and CPL. That way we can help bring that training and that education to you. So if you're passionate about it, please consider joining us in this fight. And also the Fertility and Sterility Journal gives you tons of great information on this podcast. There is a QR code over on the sign that you can scan if you want to subscribe to listen to all of the episodes. And we thank you all for being on the podcast right now. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Hi, and welcome back to FNS On Air live from the ASRM 2022 annual meeting. I'm Pietro Bordelato, and I'm joined by Dr. Michael Thomas, president-elect of the ASRM. Dr. Thomas, welcome. Thank you. Is very, it is it nice still fun here. to hear that said out loud? Uh, president-elect? President would be better. Yeah, but, uh, well, yeah. that's coming. That's coming. <laughs> but yes, president-elect is very nice. So when you were a fellow coming to these meetings, did you yeah. have aspirations for leadership in ASRM, or is this one of those things that one thing led to another? I, You know what? I was very lucky in that uh, Dr. Rebar, who remains my mentor... Uh, and honored very nicely yesterday we, at yesterday's we, gala. We, we honored him. But yes, he would he would take me to his chair meetings and put a white when I was in the lab, he'd put a coat on me and said, Come here, look, we gotta go to a meeting and he would say, Sit in the back, listen to all this, you're gonna need it one day. So he really groomed me for leadership in our field and uh, he would take me around to meet all the different uh, leaders at the time, Sam Yin, Jaffe, you know, you just 
the I've name heard of Mastriani. Him. I've heard of him. Yep, all the names, all the big names he would introduce me to, and, and I got to know them. And I felt that one day I was going to be involved with ASRM in some way, shape, or form. And I used to go to the membership meetings of, of the membership committee. Not as a member, but I would show up and they just made me a, I think I was a fellow or just out of practice. I would just show up at some of these meetings that I thought I would want to be involved in. And then I ended up getting on the patient education committee. Became, the next year, for some odd reason, became chair of the patient education committee, and uh, which was associated with the practice committee. And then got involved with ABOG, of course, and then somehow was made president of this great organization. <laughs> well, I think the moral of the story is just show up. Just show up. And be yeah, just, ready, willing, and able to yeah, help. Yeah, and I know at ASRM we really want people to get involved. There are ways to call. You can always, people can email me if they want to know more about getting involved or just call the uh, office in Birmingham. There are ways that we are always soliciting people, both residents, fellows, and faculty who want to get involved in ASRM. I think there is a big tent and a huge umbrella to get as many people involved as possible. Well, let's talk about that tent for a second. I, I mentioned that you're a president-elect. I have yes. to imagine you're starting to plot and scheme and figure yes. out what your year is going to look like and what you want to focus on. Do you have a vision that you can share with us yet? Yeah, I, I'm going to talk about it on Wednesday. As a matter of fact, I wrote my speech today in a meeting, of course. Basically, my theme is going to be the past, the present, and the pipeline. And the whole goal is to honor the people who got us here, especially the women in the field and the people of color in the field uh, back in the day to talk about what's going on presently, and then to talk about the pipeline, not just the pipeline of people, because we do want to increase the number of people of color. We want to pay tribute and increase what we're doing for our LGBTQ plus communities. And we also want to hear the voices of the donor-conceived group. So we have a task force associated with donor-conceived, but we want to also somehow figure out a way to get them involved in what we do. But pipeline also means the pipeline of trying to make sure that we have things in the future that will sustain our profession, whether it be related to drug development, whether it be related to different ways of practice, getting a better understanding on how the interaction between hybrid practices, regular private practices, and academic practices are going to be. So I want to really highlight all of those things during my one year uh, of of being involved with uh, uh, ASRM as president. You know, I was involved with ABOC for seven years with the last three years as the division director, but now I get one year to try to do all the things I need to do. Well, hopefully you don't have a global pandemic in the middle right, of your exactly. presidency because exactly. you have a lot to accomplish. Yes, we have a lot to do. But, you know, we had the, it was great. I was just talking to the kids from Drew Medical School here who are kids of color, both African-American and Hispanic-American. And uh, our goal next year in New Orleans is to try to get more people from the HBCUs and STEM high schools who will show up at our meeting and be involved in our meeting. And uh, the goal is every city we go to, we want to leave something behind. So instead of just going and and having a great time and getting to network and getting to, to learn the latest and greatest, we also want to leave something behind for the kids so that we can hopefully put a spark in people's mind that they may want to join us in this journey that we have and being reproductive health professionals and being advocates for women. And people have sort of talked to us about, why are you going to Louisiana? Why are you going to Louisiana next year? And I know other people have dropped out of New Orleans, but we want to be there because there are people there who are remaining, who are still staying there fighting the fight, and we need to be in that fight. 
and we don't want to back down. We don't want to be scared away from Louisiana or New Orleans. And we also want to talk to the people there who are in the, uh, the legislative areas to make sure that they understand where we stand and how we want to be advocates for women, women's rights, no matter what they are. Well said. I think our our paths probably crossed a bit in that I was also a Northwestern oh. medical student way ah. back in the day. Yeah. And I vividly remember spending time in the REI division yep. shadowing as a first-year medical student. Yeah. And I knew from the minute I left that clinic that this is what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And I, exactly. I'm a, such a believer in having these early impactful experiences yep. that are career-altering, trajectory-altering, yeah. turn you on to something you never thought you'd ever never want thought. to do. Yep. I, like I said, it, it, it's amazing. When I was, a med- I was a medical student at University of Illinois, and then I did a rotation at a now a defunct hospital, Michael Reese, and you know did two weeks of REI. Didn't know anything about REI, but I knew within the first day or two I had found my tribe, and I knew from that point on that's all I wanted to do. And I, as an intern, I met Dr. Rebar back then and told him I was going to be his fellow one day, and he was like, get away from me, little kid. And when I interviewed with him at, uh, for fellowship, our 20-minute interview went an hour and a half because we just talked about everything other than REI. And we just talked and talked and talked until they were banging on the doors. And I, I knew that that group of people, that, that profession is what fit me the most, the place I knew I wanted to be. And like you, you, you know it. You know it when you're there. And uh, uh, REI, I, can't, I could never see myself doing anything else other than REI. So if we had this interview a year from now, live from New Orleans 2023, right. what right. is success going to look like if you set out to accomplish what you've accomplished as president? What do you hope to see in 2023 at the annual meeting to, to indicate that we're there? I would like to see our organization truly be involved, not only in the community of New Orleans, but the kids from the HBCUs, high schools, be involved in things that we want to do, being accepted in our field, and also having a ability of making sure that during that meeting especially that we really highlight the innovators in our field who came before us in the lab especially we don't highlight them enough but also mainly the women and the people of color and making sure that our lgbtq plus community is involved and has a voice you know there's just so much that we need to do for the people that we are lucky enough to serve Well, we wish you success, and we look forward to redoing this interview and making sure that all that happened in New Orleans. Thank you so much for stopping by. All right. Thank you very much. Welcome. Hello, ASRM 2022. This is Michael Simone. I am the producer of Fertility and Sterility on Air, and I am so delighted to have with me a few students from Charles Drew Medical College, as well as Dr. Gloria Richard-Davis. These students are part of the ASRM mentor program that is piloting this year that humble brag I suggested to Dr. Michael Thomas last year. Uh, But kudos to Dr. Michael Thomas for going to ASRM, getting this support, making this happen so we could pilot this this year and hopefully even next year in Louisiana and New Orleans. So uh, Dr. Rashard Davis, if you can give also some insight into this program for us. So first of all, thank you, Michael, for the suggestion to Dr. Thomas because it's definitely a needed service. We are going to do it bigger and better in New Orleans next year. This is our pilot. ASRM started a mentoring program with the intent of really engaging students from the local area who are 
interested in reproductive medicine. And so we've had four of our students today shadowing different members and getting the real full experience of ASRM from a conference perspective to now we're in the exhibit hall. So I'm going to let them share with you what their experiences have been. All right. Wendy, Natalia, Kim, and Paris. Oh, look at my memory. This is fantastic. Okay, if you could just tell us where you're from, kind of what you do in school right now, and we'll start there. My name is Kimberly. I'm a fourth-year medical student at Drew UCLA. I am from South Central Los Angeles. I went to Syracuse for a little bit for undergrad, and then I was a research coordinator for two years, and now I'm in the Drew program, and I'm really thankful for you guys having us here. Oh, and applying into OBGYN and waiting for interviews tomorrow. Oh, congrats. (laughs) Hi, good afternoon. My name is Wendy Cervantes. I'm also a fourth-year medical student. I'm actually starting my fourth year in January. I decided to take a personal leave to just get more exposure into research and just live a little bit outside of medical school. (laughs) But I'm very excited for the opportunity to be here and to network. And uh, now that I'm going to be applying into electives and away rotations, it's been a great networking opportunity. A little bit about my background. I'm also from Los Angeles, uh, specifically the Hollywood Koreatown area, which I reside currently. I went to undergrad at UCLA. My path to medicine was a little bit non-traditional. I did a post-bac program at UC Riverside. And so I am a product of pipeline programs. And, you know, in the future, I do foresee uh, giving back to programs as well. And I'm interested in OBGYN, and I'll be applying next cycle. Thank you. Hello. Good afternoon. My name is Natalia Garcia Peñalosa, and I am from the northeast San Fernando Valley by way of Cochabamba, Bolivia. I'm also a fourth-year medical student at Drew UCLA. I did apply this cycle for urology, and so interview season is going to be in full swing coming up. I'm really excited to be here. Like Wendy, I'm also a product of Pipeline programs and love the opportunity to be here, so thank you so much. Hey, everyone. My name is Paris Diaz. I'm a fourth-year medical student also at UCLA applying urology and coming to this conference has been amazing because we just see the opportunity for collaboration and also how to make a change on a microscopic macroscopic level in terms of policy and also in terms of connecting with our patients and educating them on reproductive health so excited about this program and excited to see how it heads in the future and what it's going to look like next year thank you Awesome. So we have two urology interests. We have two OBGYN interests. Let's start with the urology folks. I'm kind of interested to know before today, how much were you thinking about during the reproductive side of urology versus now what you've seen today? Has that changed anything? I kind of already known that I wanted to go into reproductive urology, and I think for the future, if anything, this makes me want to come to ASRM even more. (laughs) Um, Just seeing... You know, the excitement that's here and also being able to learn from our REI colleagues has been extremely humbling. But, yeah, reproductive medicine is something that needs to be improved upon. It's not something that everyone has access to. And it's something that we need to bring to all of our patients, regardless of color, socioeconomic status, or ethnic background. So I'm excited to see what's going on here and how the field is growing and expanding. 
So this is Natalia for me. It's really exciting to have this exposure. I didn't necessarily have a specific andrology exposure only during my sabais. So this really lets me see all of the aspects of urology that are available and how we can implement those um, focuses throughout care for our patients that are also in under-resourced communities because that's very important and that's not something that's necessarily looked at in all spaces. For Wendy and Kim, our OBGYN interests, I'm kind of want to know for you two, how much extra exposure has this been for the reproductive endocrinology part of OBGYN? I definitely had, I can say, zero exposure to REI in the past. This is the first time I'm ever really learning about it. So in real time, watching these presentations, I'm learning new acronyms um, and like Googling them on the side while everyone's presenting. So it's been really eye-opening. It's been really nice to talk to um, all of the faculty that really wants to push for diversity in this field. And I just am taking all of the information about like sub-eyes for medical students, all these resources that are available and good going back to my institution to share those resources for people that are, um, you know, like second, third year medical students thinking about stuff like that. And taking the little bit of, that I learned about REI today and keeping an open mind for the future. Yeah. I shared this earlier today when we were meeting with a couple of our uh, mentors and faculty. I'm like a sponge right now. I'm taking everything in. My exposure so far to OBGYN has been our clerkship and, you know, being able to work with a mentor in OBGYN. But in terms of REI specifically, this has been my, the first major event that I've had a lot of exposure into it and learning about the different away rotations that are available in REI and having a chance to network with folks at different programs has been great too and something, you know, that I look forward to doing for the for next year I mean, before I apply. Fabulous. I mean, you guys are saying exactly, I didn't pay them to say this. They're <laughs> saying exactly what we would like to hear. I mean, Dr. Richard Davis, note to self, we need to have an acronym list for the Ventis we next year. Um, we second that. I was going to say, though, I love the fact that they're already talking about taking this information back yeah. and sharing with their junior colleagues. Sure. You guys talked about no RE exposure, but just in general, so our audience knows what type of barriers have you all faced even just getting to this point and kind of what we can do better as physicians or providers, um, members of ASRM to kind of help break those barriers down. I think that one of the biggest barriers is limited exposure to a lot of areas in medicine. Specifically for me, my lived experience, I didn't have anybody necessarily that was in medicine, first person that went to college. So addressing those needs at the at the very beginning in, the, in middle school and high school and building forward the pipeline programs is really important and something that we just have to continuously work on and see where our deficits are in order to address them better. I completely echo that. I think that a lot of times, especially from minority backgrounds, we we don't have enough representation in terms of health fields or the other things that we could be outside of just athletes and singers. I mean, I would have loved to do all of those things, but I was terrible at all of them. But it's hard to do something if you've never seen it before. And especially for these fields, it's not in our immediate paths. And so we need more early exposure, like with this pathway program, letting us know what our options are. If we don't know what our options are, it's a lot harder to build your life and build your practice if you don't know what's out there. I echo what everyone else has said. Outreach is definitely important. 
And we don't need to reinvent the wheel. Maybe collaborating with programs that are already doing outreach in the community, already doing outreach with high schools, with middle schools. I went to an LAUSD high school. I'm first gen, you know, going to college at UCLA. And so a lot of the support I got was from uh, after school programs. And so I didn't know I wanted to go into medicine until I was in undergrad. And I got a chance to work with community organizations that did work in uh, the communities that, you know, I grew up in. And so that really motivated me uh, to push forward to find my mentors uh, to, to this day are still supporting me as I go into residency and so I think definitely outreach working collaborating with programs that are already out in schools to just further exposure into the field um, I also want to add that I heard someone mentioned this earlier about maintaining a longitudinal relationship I know um, being a mentor for a day is really helpful but having that mentor throughout the stages of your career are even more important. I was in this program called UCLA Pre-Medical Enrichment Program a summer after my junior year of college, and I am still in contact with the people in that program, and they have helped me throughout getting into medical school, not preparing for residency, and connecting me with the people that I should be talking to for that. Nice. Don't want to put any of you on the spot, but if you could think about the most interesting thing you saw today, whether it be a science thing, a person talk. Or maybe Dr. Simone's talk. You don't have to say that, but you get extra points if you do. Right in front of us, there's a sperm bike that was brought to my attention. (laughs) And um, I've never seen that before. We were asking where the egg is, and maybe that's... It's on its way to the egg. One of the sessions that we went to earlier was talking about a lot of concepts, medical education, uh, residency training, as well as implementing policies that are in the male fertility or infertility route. And one thing that really stood out to me is the implementation of policies and what is needed to be done in order to implement those because policies might be put through, but how are they actually implemented and how do they trickle down into practice is really important and something that might not necessarily be addressed. Yeah, something that new that I never thought about before, but now uh, it's opened my mind to it, is anonymity in egg donation. That was very interesting talk, yeah. Nice. Definitely a hot topic. Definitely the interplay between law and medicine in this field is huge, and that's something I I didn't realize before. So the the same talk that Kim is talking about was the one that I found interesting, too. And finally, for you all, I'd like to know, you know, what do you think we can do to improve this experience that you guys have had today? Well, the one thing they told me is they want to be at the conference longer. (laughs) Yeah, I was more days. (laughs) More days off from school. I think uh, reaching out early on, you know, to the programs in the local area, because some of the logistics was really being able to carve out the time Mm. for them to be down Mm -hmm. here. And so as we look at next year, I've already reached out to residency programs in New Orleans to recruit and identify underrepresented minority residents. We have three programs that's in New Orleans. And then there are multiple undergraduate schools and medical schools. So we're just looking at how we grow this tier by tier, right? And I think on that note, if you as a member of ASRM would be interested in hosting maybe next year or also have an idea for this program, by all means, you could contact myself, contact Dr. Richard Davis, contact the DEI task force, Dr. Thornton, Dr. Thomas. We're all involved in this, and we'd love to hear your input. We'd love to get you involved. We'd love to get you to have one of these students by your side, maybe during the conference, maybe hopefully for a couple of days. 
and yeah, we look forward to seeing more of people like you next year in New Orleans. Hopefully see you at this conference also next year. That would be awesome. And good luck on your journey. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hi, and welcome back to FNS On Air, live from ASRM 2022. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief of FNS Reviews, Dr. Ann Steiner. Hello. And welcome. Thank you. So we've been talking to our sister journals today, learning a little bit more about what the last two years have been like in terms of progress, where we are with getting indexed. Tell us about where FNS Reviews is two years into existing as a journal. Yes, thanks, Pietro. So the great news is that FNS Reviews has been very successful in launching the journal. We have been now at about usually between five to ten articles per issue, and we're quarterly um, releasing issues. And we're glad to say that we've already been indexed in Scopus and now have our application into PubMed, um, meaning that hopefully we will be in PubMed and all of our papers that have previously been published will rest retroactively be able to be found in PubMed. So that's exciting and where we have come so far. FNS is a bit unique compared to the other sister journals in that Mm -hmm. it's not your traditional write the paper, submit it, and hope it gets in. Tell the listeners about the unique pathway to publication for FNS Reviews. Well, a big part in our vision for FNS Reviews is to really publish high-quality, impartial, comprehensive reviews. And so the question is, how do we assure the quality? And this is a multi-step process. And the first initial step in that process is for the authors to submit a pre-submission proposal. The idea here is before you go and write the review, you kind of have the idea about who the authors are going to be, what you're going to write about, what the main papers are going to be. You pull that together in a little one-page little summary. You can find that on the website regarding how to draft the pre-submission proposal. And that's submitted to us. And then that is reviewed by our editorial board members. And really, we want to know, is this a novel topic? Is it of the appropriate size and scope? And can this be impartially conducted? And if so, then we ask the authors to proceed with drafting the paper. And a lot of times we give some guidance and some suggestions as to things they might think about as they approach drafting the review. So that's the first step, and we think that helps improve the overall quality of the papers. I should say when the pre-submission proposal is submitted, our acceptance rate is about 90 to 95%, as opposed to when people just flat out send us a review article that they've already drafted, it's, a, it's quite a bit lower. Thinking a little bit about authors that submit things to FNS, who is the prototypical author of an FNS Reviews article? Yeah. So the wonderful thing about an FNS Reviews article is it tends to be collaborative. These are big. These are teams that have been pulled together. Most of the time, I would say the first author is a trainee, either resident or fellow or, let's say, even maybe a junior faculty member. Um, and then combined with more senior faculty or a diverse group of faculty members that perhaps have knowledge in different subject areas, but we really encourage that type of team effort because we know a lot of times that trainees are very eager to write and have potentially the time to write, and some of the senior faculty may have the knowledge, but perhaps not the time. So we believe in a team effort, and in fact, we will be giving out a prize award to a trainee for the best review article here at ASRM. And to close for our listeners, what is the topic area that you're hoping to see more submissions in in the new year? Novel topics. <laughs> we really don't. Uh, we really 
you know, accept articles across the breadth of reproductive medicine and science. You know, we had something looking at phthalates and plastic and potential exposures in the IVF lab. We had things like that. And then we have things on PCOS. We have male fertility. We have, as I mentioned, you know, anywhere from reproductive science, so very sciencey articles, all the way up to very clinical articles. So I wouldn't say there's one specific topic. We just wanted to be novel, exciting, and uh, well thought out. Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Steiner. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back. Live from the ASRM 2022 meeting, I'm Pietro Bordoletto, your co-host, and I'm joined by Dr. Agajanova from Stanford University and Dr. Barsagian from Georgetown University. Good morning. Yeah, hi. Hi, welcome. I would love to know, it sounds like you guys are working on a really important survey study. Tell us a little bit about it. So, yeah, and thanks for giving us some time to explain our study that we are trying to accomplish now. So the, the big passion of mine was access to care. And while, you know, we are focusing on access to care for general population, underserved population, etc., I'm really passionate about access to care to, uh, among medical trainees among physicians and you know we did several surveys and evaluate what's happening in the OBGYN residents among residents in general among fellows but now we wanted to see okay so what's the state of fertility issues any challenges of fertility issues among REI providers actually because you know we are taking care of everybody else but who's taking care of us taking care of us you know like who knows what's happening to us and these problems are often very silent people don't talk about this people don't share it don't like to be vulnerable maybe and this is very personal so that's what we wanted to uh, to evaluate and what are you hoping to find We're hoping to see um, what REI providers themselves, fellows, as well as attendings, um, have experienced throughout their medical career, from medical school even prior, throughout residency and fellowship. Any fertility services that they had personally used, what they have partners uh, needed to use in terms of fertility services and their personal experience with it in their own practice, if they were supported, and their care to patients after their own experience. And if the survey is for both men and women, attending physicians and fellows? Correct. Because, you know, a lot of fellows are tomorrow's attendings. Actually, all fellows are tomorrow's attendings. And the time flies so fast, so we wanted to capture this population as well. Because people obviously experience barrier to care, even if they are in IVF clinic working every day. So we wanted to assess that as well. You know, what are the barriers to care? Where do they get treatment? How they feel about it? How open they are? What's their support when they are undergoing treatment or sharing this with their practices? And as Mariam said, how their practice changes after their own experience? Do they, is there any effect of their own experience on the level of passion, compassion they have towards their profession? Probably not, but we don't know. Well, I'm excited to see the results. If someone wanted to take the survey, how could they find the survey and fill it out? So we are widely distributing the survey uh, in the meeting, but I know if when the show airs, it might be later on. So we will be sharing it on social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Please feel free to fill it out. It's going to take only maximum about uh, five minutes. Not and the, t- and the title of the study so that they look out for it on social media is called? REI Providers Personal Experience with Fertility. 
There you go. Thank you so much for stopping by the podcast and sharing a little bit about your research. We're excited to see the results. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you very much. Hi, and welcome back to Fertility and Sterility on Air. I'm Pietro Bordelotto, your co-host, and I'm joined by Dr. David Sable. David, welcome. Thank you. David, for the people who don't know you, I feel like you're very well known in our field and people have heard of you. You are a doctor by training. You're a reproductive endocrinologist, but you consider yourself a lapsed reproductive endocrinologist. Is that correct? <laughs> it's, well, I haven't seen patients in about 20 years. What have you been doing for the last 20 years? Well, still very committed to the field. I uh, took a one-year sabbatical to get to know my three-year-old daughter, and that one-year sabbatical is now in its 20th year. She just graduated college. Career Brownie in Motion took me to the financial world, and I'm now doing mainly venture capital work in the IVF field, so it kind of came on at 80 degrees. So what brings you to the annual meeting every year? There's the mixture of science, the networking, but also kind of seeing what's coming up next in the field. What, have you, what are you most excited about that you've seen at this meeting? Well, we, we've been focused on access. Yeah, in our work we've done it seems to indicate that IVF is the least penetrated, most needed service in the, all the healthcare industry worldwide. We know the data, about two and a half million cycles worldwide, about half a million babies per year. Infertility alone is 12 to 13 million babies per year worldwide needed. If we layer on top genetic disease prevention, care for our family members that are LGBTQ, oncofertility, proactive management of fertility it easily gets up into 20 plus million babies a year however many cycles that equates to so it's an enormous enormous need worldwide and we're looking at ways to improve access expand the industry how do we fix it because you can't just make more rei fellows graduate every year you can't just keep adding microscopes into laboratories what's the what's the solution well there's a bunch of them and one of them is just following the technology playbook you know, standardization, automation, optimization, and using machines to replace repetitive tasks that humans do. In the case of REIs, it's getting off the shop floor and doing executive function, overseeing instead of 250 or 350 cycles a year, overseeing 5,000. And it's very doable. And uh, the industry is taking some major steps in that direction. It's, it's been great. Has there been any specific science that you've seen here at the meeting that gets you really excited? Well, this meeting had marked the first meeting of the Society for Artificial Intelligence and Fertility. Back in, I guess it was July, there was a international meeting in uh, Dubrovnik, Croatia, of data scientists, embryologists, a handful of doctors, one venture capitalist, and uh, discussing how we can use advances in you know, both computer hardware and software and things like advanced optics to start looking at our processes in ways that we haven't been able to do previously, turning that into rational and better decision-making, and start trying to build off of the great work we've done in 40 years, getting to where we are now. So this is uh, the first society meeting. Nikita Zavinovich from Cornell and Christina Hickman started this society, and it's very, very promising. A lot of people doing great work, and the uh, goal is to apply that to all those things that we've been doing for 40 years just because we've been doing them and applying some real data to uh, kind of a process optimization. Our own thesis has been that IVF has been superb science for 40 years and pretty mediocre engineering. 
<laughs> and if we engineer the hell out of IVF going forward, we'll be taking big steps towards providing that access to the next 10 million people that don't have it now. Well, David, thanks for coming by the podcast and sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Well, thank you for having me. Hi, and welcome back to Fertility and Sterility on Air, live from the ASRM 2022 annual meeting. I'm your co-host, Pietro Bordoletto, and I'm joined by Editor-in-Chief of FNS Reports, Dr. Rick Paulson. Rick, welcome. Hi, Pietro. It's great to be here. We've been looking at a lot of really good science at this meeting. We've had authors come by for from Fertility and Sterility, reviews from science, but you happen to be the editor of a journal that's been around for two years and has really kind of evolved a lot in its two years of existence. Where have we come? Oh, we've come a very long way. I, I think, first of all, I have to say that we are doing so much better than I had anticipated because in a relatively short period of time, we are now really at a level where I thought we were once upon a time when I worked for Fertility and Sterility about 25 years ago. It feels like I'm, it's like a deja vu. And what I mean by that is we're getting about 20 submissions a month. The journal is manageable. I can read all of the submissions and I really feel like it's a, it's a labor of love and uh, we are able to create what I think is a great product and continue to build the journal. And for a sense of scale, fertility and sterility gets about how many submissions a month? Yeah, about 200. So we're one-tenth the size of fertility and sterility. And you touched on a little bit. By nature of being a tenth the size, it allows you to really get in-depth with each submitted manuscript, kind of turn it inside and out. But what does it do to the, our, our time from submission to acceptance or submission to first review? Right. Well, the first review is almost immediate because as soon as it arrives, uh, I look at it and uh, make a quick decision as to whether this one's going to go out for review or go to one of the associate editors. I think that fertility and sterility is so good with the army of associate editors and editorial editors that I think the time to publication is probably not that different, to be honest with you. Uh, We have obviously far fewer people looking at it, and maybe we'll have a little more homogeneity that way, or consistency at least, in the final product. In addition to case series, case reports, what are some of the other article types that FNS Reports has that the main journal may not necessarily have? Yeah, well, I really like the mini-reviews. The whole idea of the mini-review, and maybe this is I'm projecting because my attention span is only so long, I can't read a a full, ginormous review that has 100 references. That's like a a large meal. I'd I'd rather have a snack, and the snack would be... uh, Here is a single topic that I think is worth reviewing, and and we're soliciting for these small reviews. So they're 2,500 words and and intentionally limited to 25 references. So if somebody wants to send that in, don't be digging out the ones that will take you to 100 or 200 detailed references. Perhaps you you can cite other review articles that have already formulated some kind of an idea, and now you've boiled it down, and here's your recommendation, here's a bullet list of of things that uh, people should be doing with this particular entity and so forth. So that's the kind of thing that we're looking for in the mini-reviews. What does 2023 look like for FNS Reports? I understand that there was a special edition this year, and there's plans in the work for another special edition next year. We do, yes. I love the idea of the special edition. The special edition allows you to focus on one specific topic, one particular area, and then really kind of massage it. So it's a, uh, it's a views and reviews on steroids. That's a lot of mixed metaphors there. <laughs> it's on... <laughs> 
It's in views and reviews on uh, on reproductive steroids is what I should have said. So the current one we're currently working on is a special issue on GnRH. It turns out that the gonadotropin-releasing hormone molecule was first described in 1972, so that's 50 years ago. And if you think about how that has entirely changed our perception of how the reproductive axis works and then has been a target for therapeutics. Uh, we have GnRH agonists, we have antagonists, and now unbelievably orally active antagonists that are actually not peptides. I mean, it's a, it's a miraculous observation in my mind of what can be done in science to go from the original description in 1972 to the kind of therapeutics that we have available in 2022. So that's the one that we've been working on. The previous special issue was on access to care and equity and diversity. Very proud of that. And of course, I give credit to Tori Plowden, who was the associate editor for that particular issue. I think that we at FNS Reports were able to inject uh, really a modicum of science into a novel and interesting topic that really lacks data. People have not consistently been pulling that data. We talk about it, but show me the show me the data. And so we have that in our special issue. Rick, I want to end with you giving some advice to people who may be listening and are thinking about submitting a paper to FNS Reports. What are the bugaboos or the, the things that Rick Paulson hates seeing that would increase your <laughs> chance of success if you avoided... <laughs> I can't give away the secrets quite that easily. Uh, I, ask yourself, is it novel? Is it novel? Are, you, are, are people going to want to see this? When someone looks at it, when they see the title, they're going to say, oh, that looks interesting. I think I want to go and I want to look that up. I want to read that. That, that, I think that's it. I think it has to be the, is this interesting? Is this somehow going to make a difference in my life? That's the article that is, that is most likely going to get reviewed and likely accepted. Well, you heard it here first. Make sure it's interesting. Make sure it's novel. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. My pleasure, Pietro. All right, Fertility and Sterility family. My name is Michael Simone. I'm the producer of Fertility and Sterility on Air, and I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Verinda Desai. Uh, Dr. Verinda Desai, please introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Brenda Desai. I am the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Cooper Surgical. Awesome. So Dr. Desai actually was my attending when I was a resident at Yale. So Dr. Desai, why don't you give our listeners kind of the path you took from being my Copo Clinic mentor to then becoming the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Cooper Surgical? Yeah. So thanks so much for having me, first of all. And yes, it's been lovely to see you progress from a resident to now a full-fledged attending. I have to say that one that was one of my favorite things to do as someone who worked in academics, kind of seeing students come in and, and seeing them then leave as, as, you know, fully functional attending. So that's been lovely to kind of see your progress. So how do I get here? Um, that's a really good question. You know, I was really happy in academics, teaching, seeing patients. I really enjoyed starting to do research too, which was a big surprise to me. It was not something I had ever thought I would enjoy doing. But, you know, doing healthcare economic outcomes research, really to understand why we do what we do in the clinic and with our patients um, and asking some of those interesting questions and recognizing that there's a lot we don't understand about what drives medical care. And then taking that a step forward and, you know, understanding the things that we do for our clerkship students and our residents and even teaching patients is so important to me. And so using all of those skills, I, I really was trying to understand, like, where can I make the biggest impact? And, you know, coming to Cooper and leading our medical team here has really allowed me to use all of those skills. 
to really drive how we use um, our clinicians at Cooper to drive you know, medical care around the, the globe. Were there any struggles you had going into that industry position with skills that you may not have had that you learned as a clinician? Or what would you say was maybe the hardest thing that you had to get acclimated with in the industry? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. I mean, as clinicians, I feel like we are overachievers in so many things. But, you know, one of the things I knew early on in my career was that I wanted to become a physician. So I never took a finance class, for example. And so one of the things I had to go back and was super helpful to have the support of Cooper, you know, I I went back and took a couple of classes on um, accounting and finance because it really was not something that I would have considered a strong point for me or even of interest, but it's been something that I've had to kind of cultivate and develop because it is essential for a leadership role. Sure. So you said you were interested in research as an attending. Can you compare what you've seen in research at the academic institute like Yale University versus now research at Cooper Surgical and kind of what stark differences you've noticed, what you would take away, what you wish one would do better than the other? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, I think industry can really help, I think, academicians and clinicians in general just do research. I think one of the things that we want to do is advanced science. But, you know, what I always say to a lot of people is you don't have to have that nature publication. It'd be great to have a nature publication, but just asking basic questions of why we do things that we do, you know, when something irks you enough and there's no science behind it, that's the question that you want to answer. And so that also makes you be driven to do the research that you're doing because research, you know, is not always a clinician's cup of tea. And so I've been really excited to start a program at Cooper Surgical for research. Um, and it's an investigator-initiated study process where we we are looking to collaborate with clinicians in all phases, but you know, the educator in me really hopes to support fellows and residents even as they're learning the research basics with a mentor to help kind of get them interested with research. Because again, knowing the foundations of research will help you even when you're an attending to say, hey, this doesn't make sense. Let's, let me look into it a little bit more. It sounds like a really cool program. And if somebody was interested in doing such a collaborative project, what phase of the idea do they have to be in to apply to do collaboration research with Cooper Surgical? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question as well. You know, when we think about where do you need to be, you need to have pretty much a study design already thought of. You know, if you came to us with a question and wanted to collaborate with us and kind of bounce ideas off of us, we do that too. You know, that that mentor in me doesn't go away. And so we definitely take the time to, to chat with people and kind of help understand what they're trying to achieve. But yeah, we really have a formal process on our website that you can kind of apply to and we can support with different materials to do research in the lab or also monetary support um, in a limited fashion. Awesome. So what number ASRM meeting is this for you? This is only number three. What have you noticed kind of change in the industry of REI and IVF since you started your time at Cooper Surgical and now year three of ASRM? Yeah, I mean, as we are thinking about what's happening with fertility care, one of the things that really excites me is that we're all starting to talk and think more about access, right? And become aware of the fact that there's so many patients that are challenged with fertility care, but that we haven't been able to give them the access that they need. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about is we are all, I think, you know, clinicians, industry, really starting to focus on access to care. How do we get more patients into our funnel to see them and be able to treat them with the care that they need? Great. Uh, Do you see any avenues? I guess access to care might be the main one, but where Cooper Surgical is going in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that really excites me about the future of fertility care is I think together we can really accelerate what's possible, right? When a patient wants to stop time and, and freeze her embryos and eggs, we, we can help with that. When the patient's ready to get pregnant, we can help collaborate with her and get her to the pregnancy and the family that she desires, either using third-party reproduction or using ART in the way that she needs it. So it's really been exciting to really think about how we can collaborate together, because I really do think that that's always been the key hurdle with all of our industries and in thinking about, hey, industry isn't the enemy. We need to collaborate together with academicians and clinicians and embryologists and work all together. Because at the end of the day, I think our goal is to get patients the families that they need and deserve. And I think as we continue to work together, that's how we're going to get the innovations to, to get to that goal. Now, dipping back to your mentor side, if a physician said to you, I want to get involved with industry, now that you've had dipped your toes in both the industry side and the academic side, what parting words would you have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really exciting and it's been so fun for me, to be honest, to be a mentor on the academic side, but also on the industry side, because you're right. I think we all think that, hey, what's over there? And I think that's one of the things that we don't recognize. Like we don't teach our trainees how to engage with industry or even how we can have different careers in industry. I know that when I came over, I had no idea at all the different options and the possibilities that even existed. And so I think that if you're interested, find someone here who's working in industry like me and, and definitely come up and have the conversations to learn more. Because again, we can make such an impact on patient care by seeing patients, but you can also make a great impact by working in industry. Totally agree. Well, Dr. Desai, thank you for all the advice you've given me throughout the years, for all the mentoring you've given me while I was a resident and now post-residency, obviously. Uh, really appreciate it and really appreciate you coming on the pod. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FNS on Air Live from ASRM 2022. I'm Pietro Bordoletto, your co-host, and I'm joined with Dr. Rebecca Flicht. Hi, Dr. Flicht. Hi, Pietro. Great to be here. It's fantastic to be here with a fellow reproductive surgeon. We asked you to stop by the podcast today because we would like to share a little bit about what the Society for Reproductive Surgery has been doing over the last 12 months, specifically as it relates to the Surgical Scholar track. Can you tell us a little bit about the program? Yeah, absolutely. So I know that we've talked a lot about it, and it's gotten a pretty good buzz at ASRM this year. As you know, we started out with four pilot sites this year with one to two fellows per site, and we've practically doubled this year. It's very much our hope that every fellowship that has a desire, every fellow that has a desire to get this advanced training and area of special expertise would be able to do so. We are definitely all about inclusivity and collaboration. And to clarify, just because you match into that fellowship program doesn't mean you need to participate in the scholars track. Is that correct? Absolutely not. And I think that's what we're seeing increasingly in our field is that different fellows come in with different passions and interests. Um, as a former fellowship director, I have fellows that want to subspecialize in research. I have some fellows that are mostly interested in the lab. My job is to help them get there whatever that looks like. If they want to do surgery, there's more than enough of that for them to um, be able to develop that as an area of focus. But no, our, our intent was never for a site to exclusively train surgical scholars. Beyond the surgical exposure during the scholars track, what are the other things that these fellows are being exposed to outside of the OR? 
Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked that because our intention really was for this to be a full-scope scholars track. It's not just about the cases and the surgical expertise. Um, It's about the research component. Each fellow is going to have a research project that they can present at ASRM as part of a traveling program um, to truly, you know, dig down on that academic focus. And then there's also my favorite part, which is a two-year didactic curriculum. We meet once a month. There's journal clubs. There's didactic lectures, there's research collaboration meetings, and so really wanting to foster a spirit of it's not just the surgery, but it's the research to answer those big surgical questions, and it's the didactics to bring us together to really start the conversation. I'm really excited about the opportunity for doing multi-center work on some of these rare conditions that all of us take care of a little bit of, but if we combine the collective experience, I'm thinking malarian anomalies, Asherman, some of the stuff that if you really had it at scale, you could do the intervention. You could do follow long-term outcomes. So to me, that feels like the extra value added from a program like this, where you're exposing people, getting people all together in the same room, and hopefully answering questions together. I love that, and you're the person that we need to help us with this, so we'll be counting on you. But as a great example, um, one of our fellows is working on a project looking at C-section scar ectopics, cervical ectopics, things that each center has experience in ones and twos and threes, but together we can, in a strong way, start to collate this data and then hopefully drive changes that can help us standardize some of our practice. There's so many unanswered questions in reproductive surgery, and we've always been limited by the fact that the studies are small, they're underpowered, they're single centers, and so you get local expertise, but that national expertise is really missing. What's the vision for the Surgical Scholars Tract in the coming two years, now that it's kind of graduated beyond its first two years? Yeah, I mean, I think that we'll have to see how it aligns with any potential changes in structure of the REI Fellowship. But to me, you know, and I'm always glass half full, I think we're looking more and more for fellows to start to seek their areas of passion. And so I think that for people who are interested in surgery, however this all evolves, I'd love to see it grow so that everyone that has that interest is able to get that confidence that they need to go out and provide high-level surgeries and also to really engage on that academic component so that they're driving research, they're driving innovation, and that we're all collaborating, as you said. So I I think I would like to see all of that, but just on a bigger scale. Well, next year will also be a fun year because you'll start to see the graduating fellows enter the workforce. And it sounds like we already have some success stories. We talked to Michael Neblett this morning, who's going to be joining the practice at Emory in a surgical position, providing reproductive medicine care, but also spending some time doing the surgery that needs to get done to improve reproductive outcomes, which is exciting. Yeah. And I want to share a shout out from our graduating fellow, Becca Chung. So she's joining the program in Washington. And I think it's very much the expectation that she'll be also delivering reproductive surgery, which, you know, has been a huge focus of hers for the fellowship. She's fantastic fantastic surgeon in her own right. And I'm just excited to start seeing the fruits of our labors with the program as they go out and provide that care embedded within their fertility teams. I know you and others are doing this on the national level, and there's truly nothing more gratifying at at this stage of our careers to start to see that grow and really catch fire. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Flick, for stopping by and sharing about the Surgical Scholars Track Program. Yeah, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. I am back with Kelly Lynch. Hi. Hi, Kelly. Can you tell everyone who you who you are and what you do? I am the electronic communications chair for SART. 
and I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. I have been at Bay State in Springfield for 21 years. Excellent. And so what exactly does that mean, the electronic communications person with SART? So we create content for the website. Um, we, our focus is on patients, so trying to help patients understand what SART is and what SART does and make uh, patients aware of SART's mission um, of quality and safety in IVF. Yeah, a hugely important mission. And I think what I see at least, and I don't know if this is something that SART is working on, but I think there's a great need for better patient education, um, much more forward-facing education on the basics, like what is ICSI, what is assisted hatching, what are the limitations of PGT, <laughs> like all of the things that we as physicians spend our days counseling patients on. I think that there's tremendous opportunity for SART to do that. And anything like that in the works? There is always room for more patient education projects and currently we're doing a lot of podcasting so we know about that (laughs) we um i just did a podcast with dr toner about multiples and the importance of reducing multiples with ivf and the tremendous progress that has been made in ivf and reducing multiples so that's one of the ones we've done we've also done a lot on the mental health aspects of ivf and helping to deal with some of the stresses of ivf Um, and who's the audience for your podcast patients Oh, that's amazing. And do you look at metrics in terms of how many downloads? And do you find that the audience for your podcast is continuing to grow? So far, we're up to 17,000 downloads. Oh, that's amazing. That's terrific. We can't really see who our audience is exactly yet, but some of the feedback we're getting suggests that it's a lot of patients. Yeah, I think that's terrific. So besides interviewing Dr. Toner... Do you do any patient interviews? We did do a whole season of patients. So our last season, season three, was patients, and we interviewed a gestational carrier and intended parent. Oh, that's amazing. We did a patient who did um, planned fertility preservation. We did a patient who did PGTM for monogenic disease. We had someone with stage four endometriosis talk about her fertility journey. We had a a whole number of patients talk about their various experiences, recurrent pregnancy loss. I love that. One of the things that I do for our fellowship program at Northwestern is I often will identify a patient who had a very difficult course through treatment and then invite that patient to come speak with our fellows to talk about the patient perspective. So I love that you have that on a, on a podcast. And for our listeners who may be interested in also subscribing to your podcast, how does one find the SART podcast? So it's called Fertility Experts, SART Fertility Experts. You can find them on the SART website or any place where you find podcasts. So you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Spotify any place Great. any place where you can find podcasts, you can find fertility experts. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming and speaking with us on FNS On Air from ASRM. Eve, thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FNS On Air, live from the ASRM 2022 meeting. I'm Pietro Bordletto, and I'm here with FNS Science Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Bill Catherino. Bill, welcome. Thank you so much. I appreciate being here. Bill, FNS Science is now two years old. Yes. 
how many articles have we seen in press, and what is what is the trajectory for FNS Science look like? Right. So we are honoring the author who has published the 100th original article. We have over a hundred and I'd say at this point over 120 articles in press on PubMed. If you go to F space S space Sci in journal search, you will find uh, the article specifically for FNS Science, and uh, we are. Consistently, we have now built up a significant uh, grouping of articles, even though the articles are immediately put online and we move rapidly for them to get PubMed uh, reference numbers as quickly as possible. We are building up enough such that when we set them up into individual journals, we have enough for the next journal and we're building for the next one. So we've built up enough so that we are on a good head of steam moving forward, really excited about the future for FNS Science. And where where are submissions from FNS Science largely coming from? Are they North American scientists? Are you seeing a more global list of authors or these trainees? Who who is the FNS Science author? It's fascinating. If you draw a horizontal line across the globe, that's where articles are coming from. We would love more from South America. That would be wonderful. Um, Certainly, North America is a big contributor. Europe, uh, the Middle East, uh, Asia, India. We have a very strong representation there. We certainly need more from other areas. It would be great. Please submit your research. It's fantastic to get uh, that broad spectrum because the goal is to be the repository for the best reproductive science. And Bill, what, what's your vision for FNS Science in this coming year? Are there things that FNS, FNS Science is hoping to focus on in re- regard to topic areas, things that you haven't seen in your first two years that you're hoping to attract to the journal? What's, yes. what's the next 12 months right. look like? So the next 12 months, we're focusing on, we've been addressing several issues at the same time. Well, we're going to have a special issue that's going to be coming out looking at specifically uh, genomics, genetics concepts that are very in-depth. And uh, Dr. Nathan Treff, our associate editor-in-chief, is going to be um, spearheading that one. And then in addition, we're broadening out the aspects of the different types of research or foci that we're looking at. Generally, we try to group them into individual areas. We're realizing that there's a strong demand for or strong interest in really specific basic and translational science in reproductive diseases. So we might end up branching that out as well as there's a significant interest in addressing very important clinical topics, but on a basic and translational level. Well, if you're listening and you have a basic science article, it sounds like FNS Science is its logical home. That is where its home should be. And I'd like to say that for those of you who are interested in the fertility and sterility grouping, we are all part of the same group and we all benefit, as you can hear right now, from the aspects that are unique to publishing in fertility and sterility. So if you publish in FNS Science and you would like to talk about your research, you'll have the opportunity to sit here next to Pietro and be able to address and talk about how your research is important and the value that your research provides. So if you're interested in that sort of thing, this is your journal. Well said. Bill, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, so I'm back. This is Michael Simone with the Fertility and Sterility On Air podcast, and I am delighted to be joined by Davina Fankhauser. She is with Fertility Within Reach. And Davina, I would love for you to tell the audience kind of what we did on Sunday. I was at this great event put on by Dr. Camille Hammond of the Cade Foundation. Shout out to her. She can't be here right now. She actually is already on the way home. But Davina, why don't you just kind of recap for the audience uh, what we were doing that day? So uh, Dr. Hammond organized a reproductive justice summit. 
and we had an opportunity to have doctors and mental health professionals and people from patient organizations come and talk about issues related to reproductive justice and how we can increase justice and access for patients of the black community and people of color. Awesome. And a big shout out to the other groups that were participating. Those would be the Broken Brown Egg, the Detox Now, the White Dress Project. You got Eggs Over Easy, Fertility for Colored Girls, Warrior Wednesday, and Semen Secrets. Thank you for all those companies and all those foundations for working with the Kate Foundation to put on that great event. Reproductive justice, Davina, has been definitely a hot topic. Can you kind of give the audience at home what has been brewing with reproductive justice? Why is it becoming more and more on the forefront of everybody's minds? I think a couple of years ago, they weren't all those organizations that you just mentioned. Sure. And I, I think they've been born out of a need. I think research is key. More research is out there showing that there's inequity in accessing treatment based on race. I think we see health outcomes are different based on race. And there's just this need to get information and content out to the public. Absolutely. Right, to make that easier. And it was great to have doctors come and share this information with other medical professionals and patients who are interested. In sure seen about change and big also big shout out to kaylee stewart the actress the yeah. writer the advocate who was there as she was a patient herself and so she was there as the mc she did a wonderful job she did she i think every speaker there did a yeah. wonderful job i i've been around in this industry for almost two decades and that was, I think, the best event I've ever participated in. And it could be even better next year. We're hoping it's even bigger next year. Right. I think the word is already getting around. I, I ran into somebody through the halls of ASRM, and they were like, oh, you were in that summit? Four people have told me it was fantastic. Great, I was like, great. it really was. Awesome. Yeah. So why don't we talk about fertility within reach? Kind of what do you do with them? What are their goals and mission? So we help increase access to fertility treatment and fertility preservation. And it's either educating underserved populations or it's creating legislation and lobbying for it. And Camille had me participate in the summit so I could share laws that were helpful or harmful to reproductive care and really help people empower them and get them active in advocating for themselves. And so are you working with people individually and patients individually or are you working with other organizations as a whole to like push ideas together so we can do both I, I call it like a micro level and a macro level micro level we help patients with insurance appeals we help doctors with peer-to-peer -peer reviews but we also work with other organizations and we advocate for legislation and we help build grassroots movements around the country is there a big, in particular, movement that you have at the moment or a big topic that you guys feel like you're trying to get across at the moment? You know, this summer threw us all for a loop, and we had a lot of interns who were really disheartened by the Supreme Court Dobbs decision. And instead of feeling helpless, we decided to take action. So we created state-specific flyers to educate how many babies were born from assisted reproductive technology in their state in a given year and 
what ways are needed to protect patients and providers when they're considering anti-abortion legislation, um, how to protect reproductive health care. And it was great. Dr. Serena Chen worked with us on that, as well as uh, art attorney Catherine Tucker. And we sent those out to the legislators and the governors. And we have been nonstop, even today, getting emails from legislators all over the country. You know, oh, it was an unintended consequence. Uh, Thank you for letting us know. We're going to work on this new legislation and keep this in mind. I mean, it's really been uh, incredible. So we've been very busy about that. Nice. And if somebody would like to learn more about Fertility Within Reach or the Kate Foundation, where can they look to learn about these things? So online, fertilitywithinreach.org. All of our social media handles are at Fertility Within Reach. Um, the Cade Foundation, I'm trying to remember their social media off the top of my head, but I will tell you it's the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation. Um, another nonprofit that was there was uh, Regina Townsend of the Broken Brown Egg. Uh, she, she was fabulous. She was a standing ovation yes, for Regina. She is amazing. The Cade Foundation's Instagram handle is at Cade Foundation. That's Cade, C-A-D-E, Foundation. That's wonderful. Thank you, Davina, for coming on. Like I said, it was really great this year on Sunday. We hope next year that we have the second annual Reproductive Health Justice Summit. If you're interested, please come out. We'd love for this to grow. We'd love to see you there. We'd love to get you involved. We'd love just for you to know things. That's good enough, too, just to be educated so you can pass along information as it comes. Absolutely. Thank you, Davina, for coming out. you're listening to this podcast and wondering how you can get involved with fertility and sterility, you'd be surprised to hear that we review over 200 articles per month. I'm very impressed with the efficiency of fertility and sterility, but it's an amazing amount of work by volunteers. To date, there's been almost 1,700 reviews, separate reviews for papers considered for FNS. And to do that, we need outstanding, attentive, wonderful scientists and clinicians that want to give their peer review and their opinion of the papers. We do have a database that you can be requested on, but many people ask, how come I'm not asked to review? The best way is to contact us, send an email to me, send to the, the journal itself, and we will make sure that your profile is up to date. You can, of course, update your own profile online, but uh, it might be easier to just contact us, let us know your special interest, and we will gladly look for new reviewers. And once you sign up, Kurt, could you comment a little bit on what a good review looks like for fertility and sterility? So generally speaking, a paper in fertility and sterility gets at least two reviews, and what I'm looking for in those reviews is a combination of a, a big picture overview of an article as well as some detailed aspects if you find them. But a, a good review is going to say, is this paper novel? Is this paper clear? Does this paper stand by, its conclusions stand by the data in the paper? And that's the most valuable. Details, of course, help to improve the paper, but what really matters is, is this paper going to make an impact? And again, impact is through new science, well-conducted science, or clinically relevant science. Since we've introduced the methodologic review, what have you noticed in terms of the quality of the science that we're putting out in FNS? So we've added another aspect of review to fertility and sterility, which is one of the reviews is going to be from a methodologist. A methodologist is someone whose main training is in epidemiology or statistics um, to really harmonize and make sure the methods are appropriate for the study and also that the data is presented in the correct way 
the tables are in the, the format that we would like so we can get closer to the cliche I use all the time. There are many, many hypotheses in science, but there's only a few ways to present the data, and we want to make sure it's clear, concise, and supportive. I think the quality of science is very much improved, and I think the quality is improved mostly in observational studies. There is a vocabulary that is appropriate to a case control or a cohort study, and very often authors confuse the two. And we have revised the instructions to authors to make it clear what makes a good case control study or a cohort study, and then the methodological reviewers are helping me ensure that it's presented in that straightforward format. Thank you, Kurt. This is Eve Feinberg. I'm back on with... Taru Jellaret Nolan. I'm the director of the field medical team here at Faring Pharmaceutical. Taru, thank you so much for joining us. Part of what I wanted our listeners to hear about is a new product on the market called Fertility Wise. And I had the distinct honor and pleasure to be a part of the development of this project. This is a joint project between Faring and Engaged MD in order to bring clinic-level nursing education for free, sponsored by Faring Pharmaceuticals, into the clinics to give foundational learning opportunities to brand new nurses, front desk staff, and all clinical experts. So obviously, I know what this is because I had the pleasure and honor of working on this project with you. But for our audience, can you share a little more about what Fertility Wise is? Sure. And I have to say it was such a pleasure working with you, Eve. Um, and Tamara. I'm very excited about Faring's new e-learning modules. Fertility Wise is a new on-demand e-learning program for fertility clinic staff, including nurses and advanced practice providers. Through access to a comprehensive online resource, which includes modules on reproductive endocrinology and infertility, Fertility Wise provides information on multiple topics, The evidence-based content of Fertility Wise focuses on fundamentals of fertility care and easy-to-access modules that are available for viewing based on each individual's schedule and at their own pace. So I know a little bit about how the idea for this came about, in part because it somewhat evolved out of my own pain points in continuously training new nurses, new clinic staff. I felt like especially during pandemic times when we had higher turnovers, the foundational learning portion of what we do seemed redundant. Every new nurse that came into the clinic, we would review the menstrual cycle and we would really talk about those foundational learnings. And tell me a little bit more on your end of things. I know I had suggested something of this magnitude, but from your perspective, how did this come about and how did we make it materialize? Absolutely. Through many, many discussions with you and Tamara, as well as other clinicians, the unmet support of nurse education was one of the, as you said, pain points identified in the field. We know that for staff caring for individuals and families going through their fertility journey, in-depth knowledge across a wide range of topics is essential to provide the guidance and support aspiring patients seek. We at Faring believe we understand the needs of the clinic staff and are pleased to offer FertilityWise to help make important information more accessible, which can lead to enhanced patient experience. So just a little bit for our audience, can you speak on what topics are covered? Yeah, with working with a brilliant team of EngageMD to bring to life 
this comprehensive online library, which includes modules in reproductive endocrinology to cryopreservation to embryology. FertilityWise provides a single point of access for this information for new and experienced staff members at no cost. Really? No cost? That's amazing. How does somebody register for FertilityWise? It's simple. To learn more, uh, you're going to go to www.faringusa.com forward slash FertilityWise, and we'll get you signed up. So is this an ongoing project? Or are we going to continue to develop more educational modules? That's a great question because this is a new e-learning program, and we'll evaluate the response, which has been fantastic. And FertilityWise will potentially grow, and we will determine next steps from there. And any plans for something similar geared towards patient education? So Faring is always interested in understanding the patient's experience. Patient education is key to a successful outcome. We're really committed to supporting our clinicians, which positively impacts our patients. Thank you so much for joining us today at the Fertility and Sterility on-air booth live from ASRM. Thank you so much for having me. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. 